Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, December 22nd, and we're bringing the year to an end with all of our Industry Focus hosts. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by fellow hosts, Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, and Nick Seipel. What's going on, people? Howdy. Hey, Dylan. Happy Christmas. So, Fools, this is our final show of 2021. Uh, It's also the final show that we are going to be doing in Industry Focus, of this Industry Focus concept. Uh, We've mentioned it in episodes over the past week, but for anyone that may have missed it, uh, come January, all of us will be moving over to a new daily concept of Motley Fool Money. Still be doing our S1 breakdowns, still covering earnings from our full favorite stocks, but we're going to be doing it as part of a podcast supergroup, kind of like if the Avengers were really into stocks or personal finance. We're excited for this new format. We feel like it's a good chance to do even more of what we do best. But before we all assemble in the Motley Fool Money feed, we've got our final show here on Industry Focus. We thought it'd be fun to get all the hosts together to talk about companies that we have learned a lot from um, and really, you know, some of them in our portfolio, some of them no longer in our portfolio, uh, for better or worse, uh, and just some of the lessons that we've been able to take from them. Uh, I think there are no shortage of businesses we could have talked about here. I was thinking about where I wanted to go with this show and had about five different companies that immediately came to mind, had to whittle it down to one, and I asked all you guys to do the same. Uh, I'm curious, did did anyone else have that same blending of, where do I go with this one? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there were at least half a dozen different companies that I could have chosen from for this episode, and I, I hope I chose the right one. <laughs> <laughs> there are no wrong answers, right? Uh, this is uh, this is the fun of this construct, um, and we're gonna be we're gonna be mentioning a couple names that I think a lot of listeners have in their own portfolios, uh, and uh, a lot of names that people are familiar with. Hopefully, the lessons are uh, a little bit more deeply insightful, um, and and kind of a chance for us to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, also, gonna be touching on a couple different sectors here. We have some software businesses. And we have some retailers. Um, Emily, why don't you kick us off with one of those retailers? I love to. And this might be kind of a pessimistic note to start on. But can I actually pose a question to the panel here? I would love to know what the most recently sold stock you've sold is in your own portfolios. Wow, that's a really good question. I, I honestly don't know. I'm going to have to... <laughs> I'm gonna have to get this back is just to proof that, that we don't really... plan these things out beforehand. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also proof I think we probably were more were more net buyers of stocks. I would I would guess. I mean, given our general philosophy that we espouse, I just I know I've sold something at some point. I just can't remember what it was. Yeah, I can give you one for me. I school I sold a Block, formerly known as Square. Uh, you know, great business that had lots of growth. I just felt like uh, you know just the evolution of this the business and leadership's kind of stated intentions. It's become more and more an explicit bet on kind of the future of of cryptocurrency, and that's not a uh, not part of my best vision for the future. To use kind of David Gardner's term, and so for that reason, I, I sold the stock. Hopefully, it does very well going forward, but just wasn't in in my uh, circle of competence anymore. Well, you just you now you triggered it, Nick. I remember the ones that I sold, and I sold these strictly from a needing to raise a little capital for a home renovation project. But I did sell a little bit, not all of, but I sold some of my position in Mastercard, Visa, PayPal, and Square. Um, again, I, I still hold 
positions in all four companies, but I trimmed some from those winners in order to uh, wrap up a home renovation project. So technically, those were the last I sold, but I didn't sell them because I have a problem with the businesses. Though, Nick, your concerns are appreciated. I, I wonder about that myself. Well, I think those are all great reasons to sell. Um, I will have to tell you, though, the story about my most recently sold stock. And it was a long time ago in my defense. So the story of the stock that I learned the most from has to be Best Buy. It was a business that I sold back in 2018 after holding it, I believe, since around 2013. Um, And it was as a lot of investors will be familiar with, a very bad decision to sell around 2018 uh, because the stock has done wonderfully since then. But the reason why I learned a lot is because it taught me the importance of having a thesis when making that first investment. So you know what goes right and what goes wrong that can inform your selling decision. So when I purchased Best Buy, I didn't really have a reason for doing so. Um, I knew it as a consumer. I thought I was just getting into finance. I thought, hey, this this is making some cash. Uh, and so I bought it, right? Out of curiosity, I also have to admit the share price was pretty low. Um, I was a pretty poor college student at the time. So I was intrigued. And I held it for a number of years watching it go up 100%, 200%, nearly 300% before in 2018 realizing I was still holding on to this company, not knowing what to expect. Seeing such a large share price gain, I just I sold my shares, thinking to myself, well, surely it's not going to go up any further from here. And it did, as many investors, as I said, know nowadays. So to me, it highlights, of course, as you mentioned, Jason, the importance of being a net buyer of great businesses, but also just the importance of having a thesis for why you buy a business in the first place. If I had the thesis that played out for Best Buy, I would have known back in 2018 that Best Buy was executing on all those wonderful initiatives that they had put in place, and I didn't need to sell my shares. And I'd be up another, what, two or 300% again today. Well, Emily, when I hear that, I, I think about like the classic beginner investing advice of buy what you know. And I feel like to incorporate that perspective, we could say buy what you know and maybe write down why you bought it, right? As a, as a way to kind of guide people towards that. Because yeah, I think that that's a good individual example, but you could back that out and look at a lot of companies and particularly with some of the market moves we've seen recently. I know I'm always a lot more reassured of the businesses that I own, even if they've taken a, a 20, 30, 40% haircut if I remember precisely why I've bought that business and I can have that check of, you know, is anything disrupting that thesis or is this market noise? And if, if I'm able to come back to that market noise, then I know things are okay and it can continue to stay in my portfolio. And then it doesn't join the ranks of the very few stock, stocks that I've sold recently. Um, Nick, I, I know your, uh, your investing lesson also comes from a retail stock. Yeah, so the, the the stock I want to talk about today is GameStop. Uh, you know, it was way back in January when when GameStop had its real huge uh, meme stock rally, but it really is one of one of the stories of 2021. But for me, the, the lesson from GameStop goes back all the way to uh, 2019. So the first time I ever got exposed to GameStop as maybe a potential investment, we did a podcast on June 4th, 2019, called "Investing in Games and Toys," where I had Dan Klein and Jim Gillies on the podcast to talk about GameStop and Funko at the time. Um, Jim Gillies made the case that, listen, I think GameStop is a value investment. At the time, it was about $800 million market cap, trading at about net cash. It actually went down significantly lower in the, in the next couple months, got down around $350 million in July, uh, July 2019. They cut their, their dividend. They were yielding about 15% coming into June 2019, cut their dividend to zero. Stock fell all the, all the way to around $350 million market cap or so. That's when I actually first bought the stock at about $3.99 
$0.15 cents a share. The, the story with this stock is, is, uh, is a big one. Number one, um, the efficient market hypothesis doesn't make any sense. You can't have a, a stock go from $4 a share to, I think, I think it peaked out over $500 um, sometime in January uh, 2021. That doesn't make sense in, in a world of, of rational markets. Number two, uh, the lesson for me uh, was you, see, you saw this full cycle of uh, the investor base turnover in the company. So, you know, buying a company at $350 million at subnet cash with a catalyst of the, of the console cycle coming in late, um, late 2020, that's a value investing thesis. The folks who were buying on Wall Street bets in, you know, whatever, January 2021, the thesis was short squeeze and, you know, Citadel is conspiring against you, what have you. Um, you see this this whole this whole shift of the investor base and the thesis around a stock, the narrative around a stock over the course of of a year, and often you see that happen um, over a longer time period as kind of opinions about a company shift. But GameStop gave you that um, really in the course of of less than a year. The the, the narrative really turned. And then lastly, uh, one lesson uh, you can take away from GameStop as well is the idea of reflexivity. It's a George Soros idea that kind of people's uh, Perceptions that they uh, that they you know inject into the market actually impact what happens in the real world, and in the case of GameStop, that's really significantly impacted the business. One of the one of the questions around the company was you know its ability to maintain its uh, its debt load and pay for you know whatever transition the business may may be able may maybe would have to make in the future. Well, you know with that stock price moving up the way it did, GameStop was really able to unlock um, a lot of. Uh, Cash uh, for, from its equity. So, so I told you that back in uh, July 2019, it was trading in the $300 million range. April 2021, Game, GameStop issued over $550 million in stock. Uh, June 2021, issued another $1.12 billion in stock. Uh, so clearly, when you're able to get 4x your market cap, um, uh, where, where it was a year and a half, uh, you know, two years ago, uh, that you're able to raise in stock. That really changes the the futures of of the business. So you're you're able to see a little bit of that reflexivity from the stock market back to the real business in the real world. So those are a few lessons from GameStop for me. Yeah, I, I think the GameStop story is probably going to be one that is studied by market historians, participants, basically anybody who touches the stock market for the next five decades. It's just one of those things that it was such a watershed moment in the way that retail investors interacted with the market. But also, to your point, Nick, the, the way that some of the core fundamentals of a business uh, can kind of be abstracted away uh, based on sentiment and also some of the other market factors at play. Um, Jason or Emily, I'm curious if you guys have any, any thoughts or reflections on GameStop. Other than I also had Jim Gillies on industry-focused consumer goods, I believe, in late 2020, after the stock had risen from, I believe it was a short squeeze, um, nearly 100 to 200%, and having the conversation with Jim about, is this ridiculous? Is this the top for GameStop? And then over the next subsequent months, as all investors are, are familiar with, seeing that, no, that was not, in fact, the top for GameStop. <laughs> Yeah, one other thing to mention too is like it was trading at uh, net cash. You know, the, the the valuation of the company was at net cash, um, and over a hundred percent of the shares were sold short. Those two things together is really bananas, and that's why you saw the, the crazy short squeeze. One without the other, and you don't get you know a share price over a hundred dollars. Yeah, I, I think it will fundamentally change the way that people short stocks, right? Uh, and and the way that uh, people tend to pay attention uh, to short interest going forward. Jason, what about you? Any meditations on GameStop? Uh, um, yeah, it seems like there are a lot and it's, it, it all, I don't know, it really just all kind of boils back down to 
fundamentals for me. I mean, I just GameStop, you could see where they were running into some challenges, obviously making that shift from physical games to digital games. And uh, it, it wasn't necessarily to say it was a bad business, um, but but it was a challenged business. Uh, and then to see what what happened. I mean, I mean the meme, meme stock madness is just... I mean, I mean, it just kind of goes to show you that it, there, are, there is a point where you have to kind of be able to just throw up your hands and say, you know what, I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe I'm going to sit back and I'm going to watch this. I'm going to learn from it. Um, but when you're looking at a business trying to make a hard pivot, uh, that's different than a business that sort of set out to go in the direction, you know, that the puck is 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 headed, so to speak. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's been one of the more fascinating stories. I mean, frankly, I think it just goes to show you the power of the masses, the power of network effects and social media, and how uh, this is a much different investing environment in the 21st century than, uh, than the one that I grew up with. Jason, I like your point there about uh, focusing on businesses where it's it's relatively easy to see what the path to success looks like, uh, and we often tend to focus on tailwinds and and really things that are going to be pushing a business forward. Uh, you know, there you don't get points for difficulty when it comes to investing. The third business here that we're going to be talking about, uh, I believe, is one that's in every single one of our portfolios, and I imagine is probably in the portfolios of many of our listeners. Uh, Jason, you wanted to talk through Shopify and some of your investing lessons from Shopify. Yeah, sure. I mean, Shopify, it's been a, a fascinating business to watch through the years. And I mean, this one goes all the way back to um, our million dollar portfolio days. MDP, a service that we had here at The Fool for several years. There's a real money portfolio service that I worked on with Matty Argersinger and Brian White. And, um, you know, we had, a, we had a lot of fun with it because we were always bringing new ideas to the table and deliberating them. And the idea was to try to get ideas from all of our different services at the time. It was only about five services that we had. So it was a much different land, different landscape than, than we have today. But um, Shopify was one of those companies that was just kind of getting started. I mean, this is 2016 or so. The share price when we were really going through it was around $35 per share as a you know, $2.7 billion market cap or so. So it was still relatively a small company. Um, and and I, I say that when I, when I say small company, I mean, that, that was sort of one of our, that, that was what I think caused some of the trepidation when we were looking through it. You know, we could see the potential, but by the same token, we could see it was a very small company in, in the context of the existing e-commerce landscape. Um, and it, 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 there were just some questions, I think, that we all had at the time in regard to its competitive advantage, I mean, you look at the way that it makes its money. I mean, a, a lot of subscription income there, but it's it's very short-term subscription, so it's very easy for for people to to, to come and go. So, so churn could have the potential to be relatively high. Uh, it, it was unclear at the time how much they could benefit from their payments platform, and that was one of the questions that we had. Uh, was in regard to its third-party payment partners, exactly what kind of bargaining power they had in that relationship. Uh, again, you know, being back 2016, we hadn't even really come up with the war on cash basket yet then. But um, I, I have a feeling that a year later we'd have probably been looking at that a little bit differently. But um, yeah, generally speaking, it was just it, we we had enough questions at the time. To, to think, okay, you know what, this is an interesting idea. It's not one we had a high conviction on, so we're going to put it on that, that radar stock list, and it's going to be one we continue to follow up with. Um, and, and you know the story from there. I mean, the stock has just taken off, right? I mean, it's just never looked back. And, and I think that's for a lot of reasons. I think, uh, I mean, obviously, they continue to grow. 
their users. I mean, they provide a real and valuable service in this day and age uh, as, as e-commerce takes off. And, and I think that we've seen with Shopify, as, as with a, a few other businesses in the space, they they developed really a platform that provided many, many different services, right? It wasn't just one service. I mean, they'd incorporate the marketing and the payments and, you know, running your own site. And, and it just it goes back to that word optionality. And I think when you have a business like that, uh, that is pursuing such a massive market opportunity in consumer retail, and then really from a global perspective, I mean, this is a global business at this point. I mean, it's just the market is going to give those types of businesses a little bit more wiggle room, I think, in the early days uh, because it sees that that potential that it's pursuing. Um, in, in, you fast forward to today, obviously, it's been a very winning investment. It, it, you could be forgiven if at the time you said, well, it was $35, and, and then you fast forward just a, a couple of years, a few years later, and you've got a, a $300 stock, and you, you'd be forgiven if you just said, well, I must have missed this one. Um, I, I, I decided to look at that and say, you know what? I missed it back then, but I'm not going to keep on missing it. So I ended up buying shares of Shopify around $250 per share, uh, which sounds high when I compare it to the $35 uh, per share figure when we actually started really digging into the business. Um, but $250 per share in the context of today's share price uh, still doesn't seem so bad. And it's it's one of my bigger winners in my portfolio because I've uh, held on to that position religiously since I bought it several years back. So I think really, to me, I mean, that that's the biggest lesson from a business like Shopify is, is for investors to remember that you know, you may not have missed it. You know, even if the share price is a little bit higher or a lot higher than than when you may have been looking at the business, uh, that doesn't mean you missed it. There, there still can be some meaningful gains to be had, uh, particularly if it's a good business and and it's continuing to chalk up good results. And I think that's what it boils down to with Shopify is when you look at those numbers quarter in and quarter out, the key performer, the key performance indicators all tell the tale of a business that is just winning. I mean, gross merchandise volume, monthly recurring revenue. Billings retention rate, merchants, subscriptions, uh, payments. I mean, all of these key performance metrics continue to trend in the right direction. Uh, so, it, I, I guess that kind of goes back to that uh, David Gardner uh, adding to your winners mentality. And uh, it's it just, just worth remembering that even though you may have missed it early on, that doesn't mean you missed it entirely. Yeah, I don't know about Nick or Emily, but I will say I was someone who did not get in on the first boat uh, when it came to Shopify. And I think got my first position after uh, certainly some of our services. And, and I think many of our colleagues already saw uh, three figures in percent return on their shares. Uh, even with that, I'm still looking at it being one of my biggest winners, have bought into it multiple times and am enjoying some pretty solid returns. Nick, Emily, what about you guys with that one? Exactly the same story for me, Dylan. I think my cost basis on Shopify is somewhere in the 300s, if memory serves, which I remember thinking at the time, I've missed the boat here, but everybody loves it. Let's buy some. Oh, goes back to that thesis. Not quite a thesis, again, for Shopify, so maybe I should learn my own lesson, but it's paid out well. Nick, what about you? Yeah, I mean, my, my mistake with Shopify is just, just trimming some of it uh, as I thought it got a little bit too big, right? When you're when you're at uh, you know hundred billion dollar plus business at twenty x sales, that you know got me a little shaky, and I left out, left some gains on 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 the table. Certainly, still own a, a meaningful position in Shopify, but uh, yeah, I, I like Jason um, underestimated the extent to which these businesses can keep growing. 
Yeah, and actually, but the company that I'd like to focus on, it's kind of a similar narrative. Uh, it's it's Mercado Libre, and you could pull from a lot of what Jason just dropped there and apply it to Mercado Libre, uh, both with companies that have gone on to put up incredible returns for shareholders, people feeling like, hey, maybe I missed the boat on this one, and they just continue to put up incredible results for shareholders. Uh, the power of a platform uh, and just what you're able to do once you establish a relationship with a customer. Um, I think the the thing that really stuck out to me with Mercado Libre is optionality like what Jason talked about and what really good businesses can do when they solve customer problems. And the thing that sticks out to me most with Mercado Libre is, you know, the shorthand way to talk about it is e-commerce player, you go there and you can buy things. But Mercado Pago is becoming this increasingly large part of the thesis for this company, their payments business. It really began as a solution to a problem that the company had. It's creating ways for offline payments to come online with a customer base that's largely unbanked. And they solve that pain point by basically creating their own PayPal. And similar to PayPal, once they create that solution, it blossoms into something that is far bigger than what they originally thought it might be. And you know, just to put some numbers to it, in Q4 of 2015, $1.5 billion in total payment transaction volume. It was almost $21 billion in the most recent quarter. So it's been incredible growth for them. And a big part of that is actually off-platform payments. People using this service not to transact with Mercado Libre, but as a digital payment solution, um, meeting people that, that maybe don't have access to a lot of traditional financial products. Uh, and one of the other big lessons for me with Mercado Libre is that big winners can take huge hits and still put up really great returns for investors. If you look back to 2015, the company has had near 30% drops eight different times, and it is a 9x since then. Uh, and actually, Jason, I while we were recording the show, looked, you could tell a very similar story with Shopify. If you look at the number of times, it was 30%, 20% off of highs and just continue to move up and to the right over time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a good reminder that uh you know the the stock price in the near term isn't necessarily indicative of what the business is doing at the time and when you pan further out and look over those 5 and 10 year stretches, I mean, the stock price tends to follow uh, the performance of the business. And when you have a business that's performing very well over long periods of time, uh, over time, the stock price will reflect that. Nick, Emily, I'm, I'm curious, any, any thoughts on, on Melly or uh, any of the, the optionality points or dealing with those big winners that can occasionally take big hits because they are growth stocks? I think part of it's giving companies the benefit of the doubt. I've really struggled here sometimes is, you know, you see a loftily valued business, as I think many people could say at Mercado Libre at various points in time, but giving Mercado Libre the benefit of the doubt of the optionality of their platform, right? And also the size of their addressable markets has really paid off for investors. And actually the most recent pullback in Mercado Libre, if, you know, if, if I was looking to add to my already pretty large position would be an interesting time to do so. Yeah, I've wanted to add to the position, even though it's an already very big one for me. I just got to stop talking about it so that I can be in a position to do so. Uh, Nick, uh, what about you? Any final thoughts with that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, f final thoughts is yeah, pay attention to the individual business. You know, macro can can lead you astray. I think in particular with Mercado Libre, some of the issues in in Latin America have kind of clouded the actual what's going on with the business itself um, for a lot of investors over time. And it's really important to focus on you know what the actual business is delivering. The other thing. Um, you know, I think it's a point to the good for PayPal. Folks that are backed by PayPal, good. 
good. Uh, also, uh, in general, and you could probably say this for Shopify too, uh, companies that Amazon has had a tough time competing with tend to be good investments. Yeah. Yeah. If you can stave off that competition, and that's that's a big part of the Shopify story, right? Is uh, Amazon basically decided we can't do it, so we're just going to let them do it. Uh, that, that tends to be a pretty good competitive moat. Facts. If, if Amazon sees a way where they can take your market share from you and make money, they will do it. Um, if they say they're not going to do it, uh, that tells you something about the moat around that you know particular business. Well, these were four companies that we've all learned a lot from. Um, I know this is our, our final show in this industry-focused format, and I want to say, um, beyond the companies we've talked about, I've learned a ton from you guys as, as hosts and, and so many of the other contributors that work on the show. Uh, it is so awesome to be like, all right, I, I want to start doing my research on this company and realize one of you guys have done the show already, You know, if it's outside <laughs> of the tech sector, uh, and you've already done that, that shorthand for us. Um, so thank you guys for, for all you've done to make this program what it is. I'm really excited for what it will become as we move over to that daily format with Motley Full Money and excited to bring some more lessons to our listeners, members, et cetera, in 2022. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Dylan. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Listeners, that's going to do it for this final episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.